So go ahead and pull out your Bibles or open your apps. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the black Bible in the pew in front of you. If you have a hard time finding the book of Malachi, it should be pretty easy. It's the last book in the Old Testament, which means that you could just go to the book of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, and then flip backwards a couple of pages. Uh Uh-oh. Somebody stole my Bible. And by somebody, I mean me. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, the big, bold numbers are the chapter numbers, and the small, tiny numbers are the verse numbers, and that's how we'll be referencing where we're looking in God's Word this morning. Justice is not a new word. It may feel new to some of us. The word justice has been reinvigorated as of late, and it's been heavily reincorporated into the modern American vocabulary. It may also be undergoing a fundamental definitional transformation, since English isn't a dead language. The way that your children use the word justice may be different than the way that you use it, and it's probably going to be different than the way that your parents use the word. Injustice, the the lack of justice, has been around for as long as sin and authority have coexisted in the same fallen world. It's nothing new. What is new, however, is this feeling that it's not really possible for us to nail down a shared definition of what justice or injustice is, especially in our modern pluralistic society. Even if it's not so simple to nail down a definition of justice, researchers have found that children as young as the age of three seem to have an innate shared sense of what just and unjust is. They seem to be able to perceive, for example, when an outcome is not consistent with one might expect considering the input. An example, little Johnny didn't help put away the toys, but little Johnny gets cookies. That's not fair. They also seem to be able to intuitively understand when a process that's meant to bring about a fair end is in itself not fair. Now, even with this research in mind, we must be careful to not automatically trust our own instincts when it comes to matters of justice and injustice. As Christians, we know that our perception of right and wrong, fair and unfair, just and unjust, is skewed. It's been tainted by sin, and so we can look at something that's unjust and call it just. We can look at something that's just and call it unjust. That's the way that our sinful hearts can confuse us. Another result of our sinful nature is that we want justice for everyone else, but not for ourselves. We want other people to get what's coming to them, but we want a pass on the judgment that's certainly coming our way. We see quite clearly the injustices that are done to us, but we fail to perceive our own unjust deeds. And that is really what today's text, the fourth disputation in the book of Malachi, is all about. The Israelites are crying out to God. They're asking Him cynically, even accusatorily, where is justice? 
you'll see God's response in the rest of the sermon. Let's read the text for ourselves, starting in chapter 2, verse 17, through chapter 3, verse 5. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, well, how have we wearied him? Well, by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerer, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord. This is God's holy, inerrant, inspired, and infallible word. Amen. I've got seven points for you this morning. Seven. Oh, man. No, six. Oh, that's better. <clears throat> the corruption of Israel. The hypocrisy of Israel. The weariness of God. The justice of God. The discipline of God. And the coming of God. Now, if you missed any one of those, don't worry. I'm going to tell you what point we're on when I go to preach it. Starting with point number one. The corruption of Israel. We've already seen over the last several weeks just how far from God's standard of holiness the people of Israel have fallen since they've re-entered the promised land and rebuilt the temple. And then in chapter 2, we saw how the corrupt leadership of the Levites led to a corrupt people. In today's text, what we're going to see is another way that this corruption has sort of spread out into society at large. In verse 5, we read of sorcery and adultery, which likely go hand in hand with what we talked about a couple weeks ago, which is marrying pagans and the practice of unlawful divorce. But then we see other sins like swearing falsely, oppression of hired workers, oppression of widows, oppression of the fatherless, oppression of sojourners. Go back to verse 5 and let's just read it together again. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. Now, the thread that connects these people, these workers, widows, the fatherless, the sojourners, the people who are being testified against falsely in courtrooms, well, it's that they are all easily oppressed. They have no standing or hand in society. They have 
no ability to fend for themselves. They have no authority. And so it's easy for those who do have power, those who do have authority, to take advantage of them. We can just consider each one in turn. The widow has no husband to care for her and to protect her. The same is true of the fatherless. The hired worker is likely very poor and therefore commits his security and his life into the hands of the wealthy men that employ him. Sojourners likely spoke a different language. They come from a different land with a different culture. They probably don't have any support network of family or friends. And so if the people of the land don't show them mercy and care for them, they will die of starvation or become extremely destitute. Regarding the sin of swearing falsely, this isn't just lying in general. It's particularly in, the, in, the, uh, in civil or religious court. It's very possible that two or three people who have more authority, more standing in the community, can come together and collude falsely against somebody in the community who has no witness, who has no one to be their champion. And all of these things were taking place in Israel. It says that the Lord is going to come and stand as a witness against you. The you here is the people of Israel. The people of Israel were tolerating these things in their own borders. Which brings us to point number two. The hypocrisy of Israel. Point number two. The hypocrisy of Israel. Today's text begins with Israel complaining about injustice, crying out to God about injustice. Look at chapter 2, verse 17 again. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied Him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? We're unsure about the exact nature of the injustice that the people of God are crying out to God about. We don't really know. It depends on how you date the book of Malachi. It could be what Nehemiah describes as the people beyond the river. These were the people who tried to like shut down the work of rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem at every turn, and they were just constantly opposing God's people. It could be that. But even if it wasn't these people beyond the river, whatever it is, it's leading the Israelites to doubt the justice of God. And so the Israelites issue a complaint to God, first in the form of a statement, then in the form of a question. The statement is them basically saying, well, I guess God thinks that evil is good. God must delight in evil since He seems to be allowing these evildoers to do whatever they want, which would then naturally lead to a question. Okay, God, if, if you're so just... Where is your justice? Why are you allowing these people to go unpunished? Why are you allowing the world to think that you're okay with these evildoers doing evil? And the great irony here, which we saw from verse 1, is that the people who are crying out for justice are themselves unjust. The Israelites are wondering why God is allowing evildoers to continue in their evil. But if he were to put an automatic end to evil, he would have to destroy his own people. Not just those guys over there. The people of God can see the injustice of others quite clearly, but they're blind to their own sin. Which brings us to point number three. The weariness of God. Point number three. 
the weariness of God. Looking back at chapter 2, verse 17, you see that he says, the Lord says, excuse me, Malachi says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Wearied. You've made him tired. You've exhausted him with your words. Now, we've already seen this theme played out throughout the book of Malachi. We just haven't seen Malachi kind of put a label on it, explain what's happening. But in chapter 1, we saw that the people are complaining to God, saying, you don't really love us, which is ridiculous because God has loved the people of Israel with a very special, electing love. In chapter 2, the Levites are allowing worthless worship in the temple. They're showing partiality and judgment. They're using their words of instruction to lead people astray. And then they have the gall to ask God, well, how have we spurned your covenant? Later in chapter 2, we saw how the men who were marrying pagans and divorcing their wives unlawfully were then going before the Lord at the altar and begging and crying and pleading and saying, God, please accept my offerings. In today's text, we see that the people who are committing grave and glaring injustices have the audacity to ask God where justice is. Wouldn't you be wearied by these words if you were God? Now, there is some anthropomorphism here. I'm just saying that word because I want to show it off. I got it in my vocabulary. But it's just a fancy theological word that means sometimes God describes himself like a human so that we as humans can understand him in human terms, right? So God doesn't have a hand, but in the Bible it says that the Lord covered Moses with his hand, right? Turned his back. That sort of thing. The, the eyes of the Lord scan the earth. Well, we know that the Lord doesn't actually have eyes. And in the same way, we know that the Lord doesn't actually grow tired. He doesn't actually get weary. That's what it means to be God. You don't get tired. But it's a powerful image, isn't it? It, it should hit especially home to parents who are often wearied by their children's speech, right? You spent your whole life loving your kids, and then your teenager gets mad, and in a huff they say, you don't really love me? You spent your whole life caring for your kids, and they say, you don't care about me. You're watching your kids be selfish and not share with anybody else, and then they come and complain to you, tattletaling about some other kid that's not sharing with them. I mean, it just, it wearies you down to your bone marrow. That's kind of what's happening here with the Lord. Now, we shouldn't confuse what God is saying here about these words from Israel with our prayers, brothers and sisters. God delights to hear us pray. The book of Revelation says that our prayers go up before the nostrils of God like incense, which means it's like a, a pleasant aroma before Him. He enjoys it. But He does grow weary of our worthless words. Our humble prayers are a sweet aroma before Him. Our hypocritical and haughty speech are like a stench. In the call to worship that Michael Wall led us in this morning, we saw that the prayers that the Lord delights in are the prayers of truth, not prayers of hypocrisy. The Lord is wearied by sacrifices that are offered up by people who are worshiping idols at the same time. The Lord is wearied by money given to the church by a man who is exploiting his wife, excuse me, exploiting his neighbors, or Bible reading by a man who is cheating on his wife. The Lord is wearied by cries for justice from people who are themselves utterly unjust. But God is perfectly just. Which brings us to our fourth point. The justice of God. 
I can't imagine what it must have been like for the people of Israel to hear Malachi. We know we already talked about how it must have been awkward already. Malachi is out on the street corner in Jerusalem like a one-man play saying, Israel says, and then God says, and it's weird enough already. But then as Israel stands before the people of God, excuse me, as Malachi stands before the people of God, he says, your words are making the Lord grow weary. You can imagine that their defenses probably automatically begin to go up. But then Malachi says, and you're crying out for justice. To which the people of Israel might have said, yeah, we are, actually. We're crying out for justice. Where is justice? And then you might be expecting for the prophet to give you a good word. Don't worry. The Lord hears your cries. Like the Israelites heard back when they were slaves in Egypt. Don't worry. The Lord has heard your prayers. He's heard your cries. He's coming to bring justice to the land. All will be well. But instead of hearing that, they hear what we begin to read in verse 3. He is like a refiner and a purifier of silver. And He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. God is saying, I'm going to come and bring justice, but I'm going to bring it first to you, to my people. Imagine two children playing. Both of them, an older brother and a younger brother, let's say. An older brother and a younger brother. Both of them being terribly disobedient, doing stuff that they know that they're not supposed to do. And then the older brother gets tired of the younger brother, and so he goes and he tells on them hoping that he would get his younger brother a whooping or something like that, maybe a timeout, depending on which house you were raised in. And then imagine that the father, who knows very well about the disobedience of both of the children, but expects more out of the older brother, says, don't worry, I'm going to give out some whoopings today, but I'm going to start with you, because you know better. I think that that's what we see here in this text. And God's people should know better. They, among all the peoples of the earth, have been loved in a very special way by God. They alone, of all the peoples of the earth, have received the law of God. Their lives should be the most just lives. And that's why His judgment comes to the household of Israel first. This is what God says to the people through Amos. He says, you only, speaking to Israel, have I known of all the families of the earth. That's his way of saying, you, nation of Israel, I've had a special relationship with you that I haven't had with everybody else. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. Rather than taking advantage of day laborers, the people of Israel should have been treating them with fairness, not with holding pay or gouging them with prices that were far out of line with the work that they were doing. As the recipients of God's word, God's people have already heard God address the situation. He actually addressed the situation of paying workers specifically in the book of Deuteronomy. It's not all just dipping your big toe in blood. Listen to what he says. Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy. Whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your own towns, pay them wages each day before sunset because they are poor and they're counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry out to the Lord against you. And you 
will be guilty of sin. And that's exactly what's happened. The same is true for the widow. The Lord has already told the Israelites, again in the book of Deuteronomy, how they're supposed to treat widows. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Seems like the Lord really cares about how we treat the widows and the fatherless. When it comes to foreigners in the land, we saw a little bit already, but listen to what else the Lord has to say in Leviticus. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. This is not wealth redistribution. This is not God saying, take half of what you own and give it out to all the poor. This is the Lord saying, hey, you just got all those grapes. Just leave a little bit on the outside for people to go and actually labor and pick their own so that they can be fed, so that they don't die of hunger. We would do especially well to to remember that the Israelites just got back from exile. They were just sojourners and foreigners in a foreign land. They're probably still telling their children and grandchildren stories of what it was like to be in a strange land where you didn't speak the language, where you didn't have any power or authority or ability to do anything and you were oppressed. That should be fresh in their mind. But most importantly of all, brothers and sisters, we have to know that the reason why the Lord is so angry with this unjust behavior is not because it violates some ethereal code of ethics. The Lord is angry with this behavior because He loves these people. He loves them. He loves the poor and the disenfranchised. He cares for them. He cares for the aliens and the sojourners in that land. Unlike some blind force of Darwinian, uh, Darwinian selection, the Lord does not despise the weak. He cares for the weak. He loves the widow. He loves the sojourner. He loves the fatherless. He loves the nameless, faceless laborer. The justice of God is rooted in the love of God. And God loves the weak. We learn from the Sermon on the Mount that the Lord will not show mercy to those who are not merciful. In a couple of weeks in chapter 4, we'll read of the terrifying language that God uses when He speaks of the judgment that He's going to bring against those people who do not do justice. A little preview of it here. The day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. You ever seen a tree on fire before? It doesn't usually affect the root. The Lord here is saying that I'm going to bring a fire that's going to burn all the way down to the bottom. The justice of God brings the judgment of God. Our tendency to be blind to our own sins, plus the coming reality of the judgment of God against such hypocrisy and injustice, should lead us to examine our lives, both individually and corporately, and to ask if we are living as a just people. I want to plead with you this morning, brothers and sisters, to not interpret or filter my words through a political 
or ecclesiastical lens. And I know you have these political dialogues that are going on in America today. There are things that are going on in the broader evangelical Protestant subculture that you may be kind of interpreting what I say about justice and injustice through. You may think I'm leaning a little right. You may think I'm leaning a little left. I want to plead with you to just stop doing that. Just forget the last blog that you read about this. Forget the last news column that you listened to or watched. I'm not asking you to change your party affiliation or who you're voting for or your position on the ERLC. I'm not asking you to do any of that. I'm asking you to consider the plain reading of the Scriptures this morning, of what God has to say about justice. And I think if we allow God's Word to do its work in our lives, it will offend all of us at some point in how we view justice, whether we're more right or more left-leaning. I don't want you to critique Everyone out there, I want you to critique your own self, your own life this morning with God's Word. Let His Word do its work in your heart. Ask yourself if you're blind to your own sins. Ask yourself if you're hurting or helping the disenfranchised in your family, in your neighborhood, in your city. Ask yourself if you're caring for the widow and the orphan as occasion may require or permit, or if you're oppressing them. Ask yourself if you're contributing to racism in our society, or if you're fighting it, or if you think you're just kind of being neutral which isn't really neutrality at all. Ask yourself if you're defrauding the destitute laborers among us by withholding pay or price gouging people, paying them much less than they deserve just because you know that they're illegal immigrants and you can get away with it. You know, I'm not really sure how much your vote matters, but I know how much your life matters. I know that as a Christian, one of the reasons that God saved you was to reflect His image on this earth. And He is a just God. And we as Christians ought to be reflecting the nature of His justice with our lives. We serve a God who does not take advantage of the weak, but He serves them. We serve a God who cares for the widow and orphan, not a God who sees in their vulnerability an opportunity for selfish gain. Now, when I'm using like the possessive plural pronouns, when I say stuff like our... I'm not referring to the nation of America. I don't think that this text this morning is about America. There are certainly implications that we can pull from this text and apply to America with a lot of wisdom in how we kind of parse out how to apply principles to Old Covenant Israel to modern-day America. But this text applies first and foremost to us. A holy nation of blood-bought believers in Jesus Christ. You may not know it, but America is actually one of the most just nations on earth. If you don't believe me, I'd encourage you to go spend some time in a second or third world country and just, you know, come back and tell me how that goes for you. But with that being said, America is still very far from perfect. I mean, it's really far from perfect. We have a lot of work left to do. And, and that makes sense. Anybody who expects a nation to be perfectly just in this fallen world is a bit naive. Friends, I want to plead with you to kind of abandon these utopian dreams. But it's not foolish for us to expect more out of God's people. It makes sense for us to expect that the people who claim to have the Spirit of God living in them would bear the fruit of that same Spirit in their lives, especially as it pertains to justice. Unfortunately, 
the people of God have often failed to reflect the justice of God. From Augustine, Augustine punishing dissenters in the 5th century to slaveholders in the South for several centuries, we have failed to reflect God's justice. Which brings us to point number five. The discipline of God. The discipline of God. I think what you see in today's text is that God's justice has dual purposes when it comes to the earth. On the one hand, well, first let me explain dual purpose. It's kind of like how the sun can harden the clay but melt the ice, that sort of thing, okay? The judgment of God, when it comes to the earth, it will have the effect of destroying the wicked. You see that if you keep reading on into chapter 4 and verse 2, it says that those who don't fear God's name are destroyed. That's, that's one effect. But it also seems to have the effect of purifying God's covenant community. In verse 1, we see two different messengers, and we'll talk more about those messengers in our last point. But for now, notice that this second messenger, this, as he's called here, the messenger of the covenant, it says that he's going to bring God's justice to the earth. And it says that when he comes, judgment will be coming with him. Look at, look at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 3. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. In verse 2, Malachi asks the rhetorical question, who can stand before him? Who can endure the day of his coming? And the answer to that is, obviously, no one. But for the people of God, we see that he's not going to come as a destroyer. And Malachi uses two illustrations to show what that's like. The first is a refiner's fire. This is a picture drawn from the world of metallurgy, where people who worked with metal would take it and like gold and silver and they would melt it down until it was red hot and the dross, the impurities in the metal would stand out. And you could obviously see where the impurities were and you would scrape them out, leaving clean and precious metal. The metallurgist would know that the metal was as pure as it needed to be when he could look down into it and see the perfect reflection of his face. Well, in the same way, friends, God is promising that he will purify his people. He will heat us up and remove all of the dross in our covenant community until he can look at us and see the perfect reflection of his glory. The second illustration that he uses is that of fuller's soap. The fuller's soap is just soap that removes stains. And in the same way, the Lord is saying that I'm going to come to my people and I'm going to remove the stain from among them. I'm going to make them holy. Now, Malachi says that this purification, he says it's going to begin with the sons of Levi. Now, you remember that the Levites were the spiritual people of God under the Old Covenant. Here, Malachi is saying that not only will judgment first come to the house of God, but when it comes to the house of God, it will first come to the leaders of the household of God. But for now, we just need to recognize the fact that when it comes, its purpose is not to destroy, but to purify. You know, Paul says something very similar to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32. He says, but when we, speaking of God's people, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be 
condemned along with the world. So there's a judgment that's coming to all the world, and for God's people, it will not lead to condemnation. It will lead to discipline and purification. Point number seven, the coming of God. Before any of this happens, before this judgment destroys and disciplines, something else must take place. The Lord himself must come. And in chapter 3, verse 1, it says that that is exactly what will happen. Go back and reread it. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So it says that the messenger of the Lord is coming to prepare a way for the Lord. Now this prophecy was understood by all of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to be a a prophecy about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the one who was crying out as a voice in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. But it appears that this messenger is actually preparing the way for another messenger, the messenger of the covenant. We see that this messenger is distinct from the first messenger because the second messenger is not preparing the way for the Lord. Rather, he is the Lord himself. That's why, speaking of the second messenger, it says, who can stand before him? Who can endure the day that he comes? Well, that's not language that's used for prophets. It's language used for the Messiah, the coming God King, Jesus Christ himself. And when Jesus Christ came to the earth, this prophecy of Malachi was partially fulfilled. In verse 1, it says that he is going to come to his temple. And you'll remember that Jesus Christ, when he came, he came first to his people. Eventually, he went and he cleansed the temple. And when he went and cleared out this temple, it was a tiny snapshot of the ultimate renewal that God was going to bring to the sons of Levi and to the temple of God. When Jesus came, he didn't come to merely sterilize a building. He came and destroyed the building. And he brought to life a new and living temple built on a different foundation of the apostles and prophets with he himself being the chief cornerstone. He purified the priesthood by fulfilling it. He was everything that these Levites couldn't be. He was the perfect priest. And then after that, through his death, burial, and resurrection, he made us, all believers, all of God's children, priests before God. For that reason, we no longer need a priest. Verse 4 tells us that the offerings of God's newly cleansed people will be pleasing to Him. Pleasing to Him. I mean, we've just got through seeing in the book of Malachi how all the offerings that God's people, that all the offerings that they're bringing before Him, they're worthless. But here he promises that once this messenger of the covenant comes and he purifies the temple and he purifies the sons of Levi, these offerings will be worthy, not worthless. There's not going to be any more Asherah poles in the same land where the temple of God is. There's not going to be any more blemished and sick lambs brought before the Lord as an altar sacrifice. There's not going to be coming to church on Sunday morning pretending that everything is okay even though you're abusing your wife at home. 
There's not going to be any more covenant unfaithfulness. There's not going to be any more praising Jesus on Sunday and brutally beating a slave the next Monday. There's not going to be any more clubbing on Saturday and then coming to church on Sunday drunk and hungover and pretending like you're actually worshiping the Lord. There's not going to be any more worthless worship because Jesus is going to come and make our worship pure and acceptable, and He did. But there's more. We've talked before about dual fulfillment in Old Testament prophecies, and we're not going to dig super deep into that this morning, but just remember that sometimes when a prophecy is made in the Old Testament, it's partially fulfilled, and then it's finally and fully fulfilled later on. Well, Jesus in His first coming was the partial fulfillment of this prophecy, but the later perfect ultimate fulfillment is when Jesus comes back again for His final judgment. When that day comes, the judgment of the Lord will be swift. Verse 1 says that His coming will be sudden. Sudden. Are you prepared today for what is going to come tomorrow? Or do you just kind of assume that maybe it won't come at all? If you do live your life that way, kind of not really preparing for tomorrow, preparing today for what may come tomorrow, do you feel safe in that? Especially as you grow older, you kind of learn there's not a lot of wisdom there. Particularly to the young people of the congregation who have trouble seeing past our noses. Do you feel secure in that approach to the coming judgment of God? It seems unwise to me. What if tomorrow never comes? You know, it's popular to say these days that life comes at you fast, and that's true. But the judgment of God is going to come quicker. It's going to come like a thundercrack. And when he comes, friends, he's not just going to come to judge the idea of evil. He's going to come and judge those who do evil. In verse 5, he's not, he's not condemning a concept. He's condemning the people who do these things. The sorcerers, the adulterers, the false witnesses, these unjust people who do not fear him. Like a band of rebels who do not fear the king and so rise up against him, these practitioners of evil do not fear the Lord and so they rebel against him. They don't fear him, but they should. And if you don't fear him, you should. I talked to an old man once trying to evangelize him. And he told me that he wasn't afraid of what was coming, even though he knew he was going to die soon. Soon being relative, of course. And you know, if none of this is true, who knows? You know, maybe he should just be afraid of his lack of knowledge, but maybe not much more than that. But if this is true, if the gospel is true, if one day the, the God who created all things and gave us this innate sense of justice that we live our lives by, if this just God, King, Judge is going to come back and render His judgment on the earth, He is deadly wrong. As ornery as He is, He will not be able to withstand the day of the coming of the Lord. As much as He's able to withstand me and my evangelism, he will not be able to withstand the Lord when He comes with judgment. But if you're in Jesus Christ, you will. 
Not because of anything in us, but because of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. On the cross, Jesus Christ took on His own head and shoulders the judgment that should have been reserved for us. The spotless one who needed no refining, no cleansing. He suffered the wrath that we should have taken on our own selves so that we might be made clean, so that we might be sanctified, so that we might be glorified and one day presented to Jesus Christ as a beautiful, spotless bride without stain, without blemish. One of my favorite hymns uh, begins like this. And I'm not going to cry. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. If God never came, we would never be clean. But He did. And His blood is the fuller soap that removes all of our stains and impurities. And in that day when He comes, we will be able to stand, but we won't want to. Because we love Jesus, we will bow the knee before Him and cast our crowns at His feet. And we will praise Him, not as conquered foes, but as reverent children. So my prayer is that as we leave here today, we would be more aware of our own sins, not just the sins of others. My prayer is that we would be imitators of God and doers of justice, both individually and corporately. My prayer is that we would be sensitive to those who are suffering around us and ask if there's anything that we might be able to do to help alleviate that suffering rather than contribute to it. I pray that our love for the Lord and our fear of Him would lead us to trust in His love for us even as we endure the pains of purification. And finally, I pray that we live lives full of hopeful anticipation for His second coming when He is going to make all things new and there will need to be no longer any, any prophecies about God's coming justice. Let's pray. Father, we rest in You and in the perfect sacrifice You've given us in Your Son, Jesus Christ. As we go back out into a world that is darkened by sin and broken by injustice, we pray that You would help us to be part of the solution and not contributors to the problem. We pray that You would allow us to glorify Your name, not only with the gospel that we preach, but with the lives that we lead. Amen.